Our second reading for today comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, beginning of the 27th verse. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Here ends the reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I make no secret of the fact That one of my favorite people in the Bible, and certainly my favorite prophet, is the prophet Jeremiah. I love Jeremiah because he's someone uh, who's a little bit crazy, which I always appreciate, and internally tortured, which I also appreciate, being a good Puritan from New England, and someone who is most of all passionate, passionate about truth, passionate about justice. This is not the Jeremiah of Three Dog Night. No, Jeremiah is not a bullfrog. He is indeed a prophet in ancient Israel. And for those of you who don't know the context, Jeremiah preached at the end of the 7th and beginning of the 6th centuries BC. This was a very tumultuous time for the people in the land of Judah. For it was in this time in the ancient Near East that the Babylonian Empire had risen to preeminence and was slowly taking over the smaller countries uh, in in that region. It put the people of Israel, or put the people of Judah, uh, at this time in a tough position. And their leaders made the unwise decision of allying themselves with Egypt rather than Babylon. And that led to disaster. In addition to the threats from the outside that Judah faced, there were internal threats as well. Things had broken down in society. The mores of society had broken down. Uh, People felt they could no longer trust the institutions that they had trusted for so long. And there was great fear among the people. And it was just in this context that Jeremiah preached his famous Jeremiads, his screeds against those in power, particularly those in the religious institutions of his time. And then in 597, there was the first uh, conquest of Jerusalem. This first one was not as harsh as the one that came 10 years later uh, that led to the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian captivity. This first one was an initial political conquest where the leaders of 
Judah were taken away, and Judah became, at that point, a vassal state of Babylon. And so you can imagine how distraught the people of Judah must have been, the people in Zion must have been. They were forced to submit to a foreign power, forced to pay tribute, uh, forced to bow their knees at this great empire far away. And in the midst of this, Jeremiah actually changes tune, and we get that in our text for this morning. This comes from the so-called Book of Consolation in Jeremiah. Jeremiah makes a switch from being this prophet of ultimate doom to being a prophet who preaches that things will get better. Here, Jeremiah says that uh, God will plant a seed that will grow up. Here, Jeremiah says, in the past, uh, children had to bear the sins for their parents and their grandparents. That will be no more. People will just have sins for themselves. And then in the most famous line in probably the entire book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesies that there will be a new covenant. A new covenant for the people that will be written on their hearts. Now the reason why this text is so famous is because for Christians, it points towards Jesus. Again, another word for covenant is testament. So you have the Old Testament given on Mount Sinai, and you have the New Testament, which for Christians is given in Jesus. It's like, you know, all those children's messages. What's the answer? The answer is Jesus. <laughs> and so here you have, so what, what, but one of the issues with this common interpretation where people focus on this text uh, as the New Covenant focusing on Jesus is that it misses just how radical a statement that Jeremiah is making. This is earth-shattering for, for the people of his day, what he's saying here. First of all, to say that all of a sudden, each individual is responsible for his or her own sins is in itself a radical statement. At the time, there was this notion of collective sin. The people of Judah were punished for the collective sin of Judah. You could be a perfect person, but you bore that sin of the community. That's, the way, that's one of the ways things were seen. And also, sin was seen generationally. That's one of the ways they explain the problem of evil in ancient Israel. Oh, you've been a good person. Bad things are happening to you. Bad things are happening to you because one of your ancestors did bad. And you have to pay the penalty for it. It's a common belief at the time. Here's Jeremiah overturning that whole system. This is a radical thing. To say that you're responsible for yourself and your own morality. And then Jeremiah does something even more radical. The entire basis of Israelite society was based on this covenant that was given at Sinai and is embodied in the temple in Jerusalem. You want to know how to relate to God, that's how you relate to God. And the temple is the earthly manifestation of that, the the earthly manifestation of the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And here Jeremiah is saying, oh no, a new covenant is coming. Surely the days are coming, coming where a new covenant is coming, a covenant that will be written on your hearts. Think about it. He is literally overturning an entire system upon which the society has functioned for hundreds of years. And again, when we focus just on the Jesus part of this, we miss just how radical this might be and also what lesson this might have for us. The word covenant doesn't come up all that often in our society today. We see it most frequently in, say, a marriage covenant. Can you think of other examples of covenant? Well, here at First Congregational Church, we have a covenant that binds us together. Covenants are agreements between parties. And so there are written contracts that determine so much of the life of our society. Just ask any lawyer and they'll tell you, oh yeah, contracts are the basis of everything. But there are also those covenants in society that are not written, 
that also have tremendous impact on the way that we function and the way that we act in society. These unspoken rules, these unspoken agreements that are present. So for instance, there's a covenant between a parent and a child. There's no written contract when you have a child. But there's an expectation about how you conduct yourself when you have a children, when you, when you, when you have children. Uh, there's a certain implied covenant to being a parent. Provide for the child. You should love the child. I don't know whether that's the AC unit or a speaker. 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 Okay. Bob. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Um, anyway, there's an implied covenant. There's this implied covenant if you're a parent, and when parents violate that covenant. When parents don't act the way people expect them to act with their children, people see that as being somehow a violation of something, something deep and sacred and holy in society, right? There is that unwritten covenant that you have there between a parent and a child. Uh, political philosophers of the 17th century wrote a lot about the social contract, about how when you enter into a society, you implicitly take on the covenants of that society, right? You can jog your brain for all of that sort of college reading of 17th century political philosophy, Hobbes and Locke and all those people, Rousseau. There is this implied covenant, and there are all sorts of covenants that, that function in society, I would argue. Many of them uh, are good, but some of them not so good. Here's an example. Let's say you are a woman in society. Is there, are there particular covenants that sort of govern your conduct, do you think? Ways that you should function? I think of reading uh, Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. You know, this is this famous book that was written in the early 60s that helped launch second wave feminism. Betty Friedan complained that uh, she was expected to live, work in the home, and in exchange for her working in the home and being a good, dutiful mother, everything should be well and she should be happy. That's the way it worked. It was a simple covenant. She played the role of the good homemaker, and then she would be happy and fit in society well. And here's Betty Friedan trying the entire 1950s to do this and finding that this actually is anything but freeing, but in fact oppressive for her, and she can't stand it. And so she writes this book, The Feminine Mystique, which ends up transforming American society because it spoke to the situation of so many women in America in the 1960s. Here was this expected covenant. You're a woman. There's certain ways you're supposed to behave. Uh, or you look at, say, for instance... Um, I remember talking to a woman here in Houston uh, who had been a longtime member at a church not far from here, a much more conservative church. And one of the things that she expressed to me was how frustrated she was at, you know, when, when she was talking to other, especially women in her Bible study group. And here was a single person, and as she got, went through her 30s into her 40s, the fact that she was single. Uh, everyone would start harping on and made that as a big issue. That the reason why you're unhappy right now is because you're not married. Uh, and what's wrong with you that you're not married? It's sort of like, it's, it's, it's reminiscent of Job's friends in the book of Job. You remember the book of Job? The whole thing in the book of Job is that here you have Job, all these bad things happen to Job, and his friends come and say, well, the reason why these bad things are happening to you is because you violated the covenant with God in some kind of way. You had to have messed up in some kind of way. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening to you. You had to have broken some sort of 
covenant that was there between you and God. And so this woman uh, who was single in this conservative church, the assumption was, oh, you're a single person. There must be something wrong. You just need to go get married. You need to find the right man and everything will be well. And she eventually got so frustrated with this viewpoint, she ended up leaving the church because of those pressures that she felt because of this unspoken covenantal obligation. If you're a woman, this is what you do in order to be happy. You can talk about our society's views on money, for instance. Here's another classic one. If you want to be happy in society, what you do is you buy more goods. You consume more. That's the basic covenant of a capitalist society. It's assumed that you'll increase your utils, your happiness, in an economic term, by buying more goods, right? And if you buy into the covenant of society, the expectations of society, that's what you do. The more you buy, the more money you have, the happier you are. Oh, you're not happy, go buy something. Go, you know, have uh, retail therapy and you'll, you'll feel better. And the issue with this is twofold. One, let's say you do have a lot of money and you're still not happy. It seems as though something's not right. Or let's say you don't have enough money and then people judge you negatively for that. It's a basic agreement of a capitalist society. Same thing with hard work and success. When I, I, I always assumed that this notion of American society has this, has, this, has this idea that if you work hard and you're honest and you work hard, you'll get success. And you get success, you'll be happy, right? It's a basic agreement of America. And we judge people who don't fit into this agreement, right? Morally judge people as failing uh, for not fitting this agreement. I, I remember when I taught high school in England, I was shocked that this whole sort of societal agreement that we see as, as, as fundamental to America is not true in England. Uh, the students at Eton College did not work hard, not nearly as hard as the students did um, at the high school that I had come from. And they also weren't honest at all. They, were, they, were, they would lie and cheat right to your face, and that was just part of the culture at the time. And this shocked me, coming from a place where honesty was just held up as sacrosanct. Because in America, that's the covenant. You work hard. Again, it goes back to the sort of Puritan forebears. You work hard, and everything works out. Well, let's say it's not working out. It's amazing how powerful these sort of unspoken covenants can be. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? All of a sudden, you, you, you are someone who doesn't want to buy into the concept of more money equals happiness, but you feel yourself getting dragged in. You get sucked in by the advertisements you see on TV. You get sucked in when you see your friends on Facebook or Instagram enjoying some sort of vacations. You're like, gosh, if I only had that, I'd be happier. I need to have that. I need to buy into this whole system. You see your friends who are having these, these great glowing achievements in society. And you're like, gosh, if I only had that, if I had taken different choices, if I had made a different path, then maybe I'd be happier. Or you might be unhappy in your relationship. And what does that mean? How do you, how do you function? In society, the only way that we're supposed to function, oh, the way you're happy is you find a long-term monogamous committed relationship and that equals happiness, right? Always. But what happens when that's not the case? It seems as though you're violating some sort of deeply held covenant. This is where Jeremiah, again, Jeremiah becomes so relevant for us today. And, I, and again, I put the question to you, what are, the, what, what are the things do you think are there that would function in a similar way? What things do you find oppressive in society that might function that way? Here's Jeremiah coming to the people of Israel, people of Judah, and saying, the days are surely coming when there will be a new covenant. A new covenant, this time, that will be written on your hearts. 
Not like the covenant of old. Imagine if you listen to your heart, what happens? This is where uh, one of my favorite 19th century thinkers is Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson was someone who uh, was the son of a Unitarian minister, grew up in Boston, uh, educated at Harvard College, and began his career as, as was expected. Uh, he went into the ministry and was a minister at the Second Church in Boston, one of the largest churches in Boston at the time. A plum job for anyone of his age and in his family. And yet Emerson is like, you know what? I know I'm sort of doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm fulfilling my duty as part of my covenant in society. I'm doing my good filial duty, which is to be a minister and to do all the jobs that are there. But something didn't feel right to him. He said this, 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 this form of religion that he, was, that he was practicing at the time just felt empty. And so he made the bold decision after his first wife died to leave the ministry altogether, even though he didn't have much money and didn't know what he'd be doing. And ended up moving in with a relative in Concord, Massachusetts. And then trying to go explore the world and find out what his truth was. And what Emerson ended up discovering is that, and what, what, what drove him so much was just what drove Jeremiah, that there is, this, there is this covenant, this new covenant in his heart that he needed to listen to. And if he listened to that, then, then you had possibilities that arise. One of my favorite quotes comes from uh, Emerson's text, Self-Reliance. This is what Emerson writes. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great men have always done so and confided, and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that, they, that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands and predominating in all their being. All the great social justice leaders in society, all of them, have been people who listened to the new covenant that was in their heart, where their heart was placing them. I think of William Lloyd Garrison. In 1830, William Lloyd Garrison begins publishing the magazine The Liberator and advocating for the abolition of slavery. Now, society accepted slavery at the time. That was just part of the way things worked. And yet for Garrison, something in his heart said that that's not right, and I'm going to advocate for the abolition of slavery, even though it actually put his life in danger at certain points. You look at someone like Martin Luther King Jr. or others in the civil rights movement. There was a particular covenant that was set up in Southern society. If you were black, your job was to do X, Y, and Z. You were supposed to be on the bottom rung of society. That's the way it was supposed to function. That's the way the societal covenant was. And yet, for people like MLK and thousands of others in the South, African Americans in the South, that wasn't right in their hearts. Their covenant with the Lord said that wasn't right. Then they stood up to bring about change. Not just Betty Friedan, others in the women's liberation movement, the gay liberation movement. You name whatever it is, so often those who are trailblazers are those who listen to their hearts and the covenant that God has put there for them. Now in 1620, when the pilgrims were setting out from Leiden, John Robinson gave a sermon to his congregants. And in that sermon, he had that famous line that there is yet more light and truth to break forth from God's holy word. That was his message to the pilgrims as they left from there. And that is a message that has resonated with congregationalists throughout the ages. That God is still speaking. That you should listen to your hearts. Even though 
The strictures of society, the expectations of society, the unwritten agreements of society might dictate one thing, even though the, the religious establishment might dictate one thing, congregationalists have been those who have been the first to question that and to see what might be written on their hearts. That's why congregationalists have been at the forefront of abolitionism, the social gospel movement, the civil rights movement, any sort of liberation movements that have happened in the 20th century. Congregationalists have been there all the time, including all sorts of new movements in theology. Why? Because they were willing, like Emerson, to listen to what might be written on their hearts. They were listening to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And so we find ourselves today in First Congregational Church as a gathered community that attempts to do the same thing. Our challenge, listening to the prophet Jeremiah, is can we listen to the new covenant that's in our hearts to work together, to see what covenants, unwritten covenants in society might be oppressing people, and to bring a message of liberation. That's what we do week in and week out. That's what this congregation has done for the past 50 years, and which I hope we will do for the next 50. It's something that we have to do together. And today... It's an important day to talk about this because today is Stewardship Sunday. Today is a day when we ask ourselves, or at least the Stewardship Committee asks you all, to consider what your pledge to the church will be in the next year. What will your financial commitment be to a church that stands up for the values that it stands up for? A church that tries to live into the model of the prophet Jeremiah and speak to the covenant that is in our hearts. There's a desperate need for a voice of those like First Congregational here in Houston. This congregation was established in the mid-50s for the express purpose in this community to be a congregation that's willing to stand up for those who don't have a voice or those who need it. And that requires a commitment from all of us, not just financially, but personally, in order to live into that new covenant that's written on your hearts. So I encourage you in the weeks ahead to think about this deeply, to think about how we can all live into this goal and bring about whatever it is that Jeremiah is calling you to do in the next weeks, months, and years ahead.